Hey there, listeners. This is Isabeau on our Jane Eyre read-along. You may also know me from Womance. Which is the same show that, I mean, the same podcast feed. I'm Morgan, by the way. I'm also here. I read the odd number chapters. Odd ducks read odd chapters. (laughs) Even ducks read even chapters. Even ducks on the even chapters. And guess what? It's an even duck week. Quack, quack. That's two quacks. Even number of quacks. We should start doing that. I love that innovation. Quack, quack for Isabeau on this public access Jane Eyre read-along. This week, Isabeau is going to be enchanting us with chapter 22. I read chapter 21 in the previous reading of this book, as you may have already (laughs) determined from the fact that we're reading chapter 22 this week. Lucky number 21. Jane returned to her childhood home to watch her aunt die. And uh, with a little bit of smug self-satisfaction, I think, she's discovered that her evil boy cousin gambled and drank himself into an early grave. And her two girl cousins are at violent odds with one another and are also miserable. But Jane is now, while also kind of miserable in her own special way, she is now rich uh, because she has discovered that her aunt kept a secret wealthy uncle who wants to bequeath his fortune to her secret. So Jane gets to feel superior in body, mind, and finance. (laughs) And that is where we begin chapter 22. Mr. Rochester had given me but one week's leave of absence, yet a month elapsed before I quitted Gateshead. I wished to leave immediately after the funeral, but Georgiana entreated me to stay until she could get off to London, whither she was now at last invited by her uncle Mr. Gibson, who had come down to direct his sister's internment and settle the family affairs. Georgiana said she dreaded being left alone with Eliza, for she got neither sympathy in her dejection, support in her fears, nor aid in her preparations, so I bore with her feeble-minded quailings and selfish lamentations as well as I could and did my best in sewing for her and packing her dresses. It is true that while I worked, she would idle, and I thought to myself, if you and I were destined to live always together, cousin, we would commence matters on a different footing. I should not settle tamely down into being the forbearing party. I should assign you your share of labor and compel you to accomplish it, or else it should be left undone. I should insist also on your keeping some of these drawling, half-insincere complaints hushed in your own breast. It's only because our connection happens to be very transitory and comes at a peculiarly mournful season that I consent thus to render it so patient and compliant on my part. Yeah, imagine if she said that out loud. (laughs) She's probably saying it with her face. Yeah. At this point, Jane is reminding me of that episode of 30 Rock where Liz Lemon goes back to her high school reunion and she has all these flashbacks of being bullied. And then once she gets to the reunion, they show the context and it's actually she's being an incredible bully and like a a wretched person. Yeah. I'm not super into Jane these last couple chapters. I think her superiority complex has really unleashed itself Mm. recently. Mm And so that's coming through loud and clear. Because now a boy wants to kiss her. Ooh. And a weird, mysterious boy at that. Her boss boy. Her millionaire boyfriend. Her millionaire boss boyfriend. (laughs) Secret boyfriend. Ugh. 
At last, I saw Georgiana off, but now it was Eliza's turn to request me to stay another week. Her plans required all her time and attention, she said. She was about to depart for some unknown born, and all day long she stayed in her own room, her door bolted within, filling trunks, emptying drawers, burning papers, ooh, and holding no communication with anyone. She wished me to look after the house to see callers and answer notes of condolence. One morning, she told me I was at liberty, and she added, I am obliged to you for your valuable services and discreet conduct. There is some difference between living with such a one as you and with Georgiana. You perform your own part in life and burden no one. Tomorrow, she continued, I set out for the continent. I shall take up my abode in a religious house near Lyle, a nunnery you would call it, There I shall be quiet and unmolested. I shall devote myself for a time to the examination of the Roman Catholic dogmas and to a careful study of the workings of their system, if I find it to be, as I half suspect it is, the one best calculated to ensure the doing of all things decently and in order. I shall embrace the tenets of Rome and probably take the veil. Oh, okay. So that's not even implied anymore. No, it's like all out in the open, which is so funny that the implication was so clear in the chapter before as her mom was dying and like the implication's not a good one. Well, And then here we are. I neither expressed surprise at this resolution nor attempted to dissuade her from it. The vocation will fit you to a hair, I thought. Much good may it do you. When we parted, she said, Goodbye, Cousin Jane Eyre. I wish you well. You have some sense. I then returned. You are not without sense, Cousin Eliza. But what you have, I suppose, in another year will be walled up alive in a French convent. However, it is not my business. And so it suits you. I don't much care. What the f- (laughs) That is some fucking harsh shit, Jane. Oh my god. But what you have, I suppose, in another year will be walled up alive in a French convent. Wow, that's an image, though. It's a weird trigger warning in the year 2021, but this is going to get even more weirdly, like, self-effacingly anti-Catholic. Yes. Anti-papist. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty intense. Doesn't affect Isabeau. She is Greek Orthodox. The one true faith. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. She's just gnawing on her lamb shank, looking down on all of us. Struance, what we do is suck the marrow out of that lamb bone. Oh, man. Pasca's coming up. I really wanted to go this year and have lamb with you. I won't be attending the service. Yeah, certainly not. (laughs) But we can do a lamb Zoom. There's no reason not to. Oh, yeah. Would you teach me how to cook it? I've never made it. Heck yeah, it's super fun and delicious. Brandon's always like very trepidatious about lamb. Why? I don't know, but I've seen him like eat it and like chow down on it. But then I'm like, oh, maybe we should try this. Like we got some Malaysian food this week and I was like, oh, let's get the lamb rindang. And he was like, oh, I don't really like lamb. And I was like, what do you mean you don't like lamb? I think he likes it. He's gonna fucking eat it. It's delicious. Sometimes I hate how delicious it is because it makes me feel bad because it's so good. But like, then I get over it. Is it called lamb because it comes from the baby animals? Originally, but I get the mutton from (laughs) the butcher. I don't actually buy lamb, but we still call it lamb, even though it is truly and indeed mutton. Where do you go to get it? There used to be this wonderful butcher shop in Edgewater where I had gotten it for many years. But Whole Foods also has a really nice selection. They have mutton. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good to know. They also call it lamb, but like no lamb has a leg that size is the thing. Yeah, I feel like maybe they just call it lamb because mutton is an unappealing. Yeah, it's a big ass leg bone. Anyway, things that I do in the springtime. Eat and cook lamb. Cook and prepare an effigy of Christ and serve it with mint sauce. 
Exactly. You eat the Lamb of Christ. We don't serve it with mint sauce in the Greek church. We serve it with garlic. We're not French, okay? The French Catholics can do their own thing with mint jelly. I think the British do the mint jelly, don't they? I have no idea. I've never had lamb with mint because I am an uncultured Philistine. (laughs) Anyways. Okay. You are right, said she, and with these words we each went our separate way. As I shall not have occasion to refer either to her or her sister again, I may as well mention here that Georgiana made an advantageous match with a wealthy, worn-out man of fashion, and that Eliza actually took the veil, and is at this day superior of the convent where she passed the period of her novitiate, in which she endowed with her fortune. Good for them. Good for them. Good for them. They did it. Mother Superior. How'd you end up, Jane? (laughs) Where are you going on that high horse? (laughs) I also love that she never sees them again and gives them this little paragraph. And she's like, just in case you were wondering, reader, this is what happened to them. Tie up those loose ends. I love it. How people feel when they are returning home from an absence, long or short, I did not know. I had never experienced the sensation. I had known that it was to come back to Gateshead when a child, after a long walk, to be scolded for looking cold or gloomy, and later what it was to come back from Lowood, to long for a plenteous meal and a good fire, and to be unable to get either. Neither of these returnings were very pleasant or desirable. No magnet drew me to a given point, increasing in its strength of attraction the nearer I came. Return to Thornfield was as yet to be tried. My journey seemed tedious, very tedious. 50 miles one day, a night spent at an inn, 50 miles the next day. During the first 12 hours, I thought of Mrs. Reed. In her last moments, I saw her disfigured and discolored face and heard her strangely altered voice. I mused on the funeral day, the coffin, the hearse, the black train of tenants and servants. Few was the number of relatives, the gaping vault, the silent church, the solemn service. Then I thought of Eliza and Georgiana. I beheld one with the cynosure of a ballroom, the other the inmate of a convent cell, and I dwelt on and analyzed their separate peculiarities of person and character. The evening arrival at the great town of blank scattered these thoughts. Night gave them quite another turn, laid down on my traveler's bed. I left reminiscence for anticipation. I was going back to Thornfield, but how long was I to stay there? Not long, of that I was sure. We had heard from Mrs. Fairfax in the interim of my absence. The party at the hall was dispersed. Mr. Rochester had left for London three weeks ago, but he was then expected to return in a fortnight. Mrs. Fairfax surmised that he was gone to make arrangements for his wedding as he had talked of purchasing a new carriage. She said the idea of his marrying Miss Ingram still seemed strange to her, but from what everybody said and from what she had herself seen, she could no longer doubt that the event would shortly take place. You would be strangely incredulous if you did doubt it, was my mental comment. I don't doubt it. The question followed, where was I to go? I dreamt of Miss Ingram all the night. In a vivid morning dream, I saw her closing the gates of Thornfield against me and pointing out another road. Then Mr. Rochester looked on, his arms folded, smiling sardonically as it seemed at both her and me. I had not notified to Miss Fairfax the exact date of my return, for I did not wish either car or carriage to meet me at Millcote. I proposed to walk the distance quietly by myself, and very quietly after leaving my box in the ostler's care did I slip away from the George Inn about six o'clock of a June evening and take the old road to Thornfield, a road which lay chiefly through fields and was now little frequented. I never realized the word car is the short form of carriage. Yeah, it's funny. Almost 30. (laughs) (laughs) So much to look forward to, so much to learn world still contains multitudinous mysteries there you go. to uncover. Where, where does the word car come from? 
It was not a bright or splendid summer evening, though fair and soft. The haymakers were at work all along the road, and the sky, though far from cloudless, was such as promised well for the future. Where blue was visible was mild and settled, and its cloud strata high and thin. The west, too, was warm, no watery gleam chilled it. It seemed as if there was a fire lit, an altar burning behind its screen of marbled vapor, and out of apertures shone a golden redness. I felt glad as the road shortened before me, so glad that I stopped once to ask myself what that joy meant, and to remind reason that it was not to my home I was going, or to a permanent resting place, or to a place where fond friends looked out for me and waited my arrival. Miss Fairfax will smile you a calm welcome to be sure, said I. Little Adele will clap her hands and jump to see you, but you know very well you are thinking of another than they, and that he is not thinking of you. But what is so headstrong as youth? What's so blind as an experience? These affirmed that it was pleasure enough to have the privilege of again looking on Mr. Rochester, whether he looked on me or not. And they added, hasten, hasten, be with him while you may. But a few more days or weeks at most, and you must be parted with him forever. And then I strangled a newborn agony, a deformed thing, which I could not persuade myself to own and rear and ran on. It's dark imagery. That's like really dark imagery. That's really dark. That's beyond Mary Shelley. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You should give Charlotte Bronte more credit. We should. Absolutely. All the Bronte sisters, they were all pretty. I strangled a newborn agony. Love it. A deformed thing, which I could not persuade myself to own and rear. Wow. They are making hay too in Thornfield Meadows, or rather, the laborers are just quitting their work and returning home with their rakes on their shoulders. Now, at the hour I arrive, I have but a field or two to traverse, and then I shall cross the road and reach the gates. How full of hedges are roses, but I have no time to gather any. I want to be at the house. I pass a tall briar, shooting leafy and flowery branches across the path. I see the narrow stile with stone steps, and I see Mr. Rochester sitting there, a book and a pencil in his hand. He is writing, for also very happily in the present tense. Well, he is not a ghost, yet every nerve I have is unstrung. For a moment I am beyond my own mastery. What does it mean? I did not think I should tremble in this way when I saw him, or lose my voice, or the power of motion in his presence. I will go back as soon as I can stir. I need not make an absolute fool of myself. I know another way to the house. It does not signify if I knew twenty ways, for he has seen me. Hello, he cries. Spelled H-I-L-L-O. Hello. 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 I think it's like that. Hello. He cries as he puts up his book and pencil. There you are. Come on, if you please. I suppose I do come on. Though, in what fashion I know not, being scarcely cognizant of my movements and solicitous only to appear calm and above all to control the working muscles of my face, which I feel rebel insolently against my will and struggle to express what I had resolved to conceal. But I have a veil. It is down. Make shift yet to behave with decent composure. And this is Jane Eyre. You come from Milcote and on foot. Yes, just one of your tricks. Not to send for a carriage and come clattering over the street and road like a common mortal, but to steal into the vicinage of your home along with twilight, just as if you were a dream or a shade. What the deuce have you done with yourself this last month? I've been with my aunt, sir, who is dead. God, she's the worst. (laughs) My heart's just like all a pitter-patter after his little greeting. And then she's like, I went to see my aunt. She's dead. (laughs) And she's wearing her veil because she's so happy to see him, but she doesn't want him to know. 
A true Janian reply. Good angels be my guard. She comes from the other world, from the abode of people who are dead, and tells me so when she meets me alone here in the gloaming. If I dared, I'd touch you, to see if you are substance or shadow, you elf. But I'd as soon offer to take hold of a blue ignis, foutus, light in a marsh. Truant! Truant! He added when he had paused an instant. Absent from me a whole month, and forgetting me quite, I'll be sworn. I knew there would be pleasure in meeting my master again. <laughs> Even though, broken by the fear that he was soon to cease to be my master, and by the knowledge that I was nothing to him, but there was ever in Mr. Rochester, so at least I thought, such a wealth of power of communicating happiness that to taste but of the crumbs he scattered to stray and stranger birds like me was to feast genially. His last words were a balm. They seemed to imply that it imported something to him whether I forgot him or not. And he had spoken of thorn field as my home. Would that it were my home. He did not leave the style. I hardly liked to ask to go by. I inquired soon if he had not been to London. Yes, I suppose you found that out by second sight. Mrs. Fairfax told me in a letter. And did she inform you what I went to do? Oh yes, sir. Everybody knew your errand. You must see the carriage, Jane, and tell me if you don't think it will suit Mrs. Rochester exactly and whether she won't like Queen Boudicca leaning against those purple cushions. I wish, Jane, I were a trifle better adapted to match with her externally. Tell me now, fairy as you are, can't you give me a charm or a philtra or something of that sort to make me a handsome man? It would be past the power of magic, sir, said in thought, I added. A loving eye is all the charm needed. To such, you are handsome enough, or rather, your stern has a power beyond beauty. Just to clarify, she said the first part out loud <laughs> and the nice second part quietly in her own mind to herself. Mr. Rochester had sometimes read my unspoken thoughts with an acumen to me incomprehensible. In the present instance, he took no notice of my abrupt vocal response, but he smiled at me with a certain smile he had of his own, in which he used but on rare occasions. He seemed to think it good for common purposes. It was the real sunshine of feeling. He shed it over me now. Janet, said he, making room for me to cross the stile. Go up home and stay your weary little wandering feet at a friend's threshold. All I had now to do was to obey him in silence. No need for me to colloquialize further. I got over the stile without a word and went to leave him calmly. An impulse held me fast. A force turned me round, I said, or something in me said for me and in spite of me. Thank you, Mr. Rochester, for your great kindness. I am strangely glad to get back again to you, and wherever you are is my home, my only home. I walked on so fast that even he could hardly have overtaken me, had he tried. Little Adele was half wild with delight when she saw me. Mrs. Fairfax received me with her usual plain friendliness. Leah smiled, and even Sophie bid me bonsoir with glee. This was very pleasant. There is no happiness like that of being loved by your fellow creatures and feeling that your presence is an addition to their comfort. I, that evening, shut my eyes resolutely against the future. I stopped my ears against the voice that kept warning me of near separation and coming grief. When tea was over and Mrs. Fairfax had taken her knitting, and I assumed a low seat near her, and Adele, kneeling on the carpet, had nestled up close to me, my sense of mutual affection seemed to surround us with a ring of golden peace. I uttered a silent prayer that we might not be parted far or soon. And when, as we thus sat, Mr. Rochester entered, unannounced, and looking at us, seemed to take pleasure in the spectacle of a group so amicable, when he said he supposed the old lady was all right now, that she had got her adopted daughter back again, and added that he saw Adele was traite croquer sa petite maman anglaise. 
I have ventured to hope that he would, even after his marriage, keep us together somewhere under the shelter of his protection and not quite exiled from the sunshine of his presence. Wow, that translation is ready to devour her little English mama. Wow, there's a lot of like eating and being born language and imagery in this chapter. Consumption. Yes. A fortnight of dubious calm succeeded my return to Thornfield Hall. Nothing was said of the master's marriage, and I saw no preparation going on for such an event. Almost every day I asked Mrs. Fairfax if she had yet heard anything decided. Her answer was always in the negative. Once she said she had actually put the question to Mr. Rochester as to when he was going to bring his bride home, but he had answered her only by a joke and one of his queerer looks, and she could not tell what to make of him. One thing specially surprised me, and that was, there was no journeying backward and forward, no visits to Ingram Park. To be sure, it was 20 miles off on the borders of another county, but what was the distance to an ardent lover? To so practiced and indefatigable a horseman as Mr. Rochester would be but a morning's ride. He wanted to, ladies. He would. He would. It's true. I began to cherish hopes I had no right to conceive, that the match was broken off, that rumor had been mistaken, that one or both parties had changed their minds. I used to look at my master's face to see if it were sad or fierce, but I could not remember the time when it had been so uniformly clear of clouds or evil feelings. If, in the moments I and my pupil spent with him, I lacked spirits and sank into inevitable dejection, he became even gay. Never had he called me more frequently to his presence, never been kinder to me when there, and alas, never had I loved him so well. last can't last there's a real like vivacity to the chapters of transference whenever she's traveling even in like the darker moments it feels like a lot more energetic than a lot of the prose whenever she's just at thornfield or lowwood mm-hmm. i agree or gateshead yeah what do you think i was just gonna ask what you th- uh i think part of the energy of the travel also comes across in the imagery of nature especially when she brings it into the house like the fact that rochester's presence is described as like a shedding of sunshine so like whenever nature imagery is applied to people that's when i think the prose really trips along like that's indicative of something inside jane that's happening since she so is enraptured with nature so when she applies that language and imagery to people i think there's something urgent about it really lovely yeah and the book's descriptions of natural scenes are so beautiful and one of my favorite parts of getting read to and reading this text out loud but I think it's really interesting Jane really associates Rochester with these natural though not human elements right Rochester associates her with supernatural humanoids you know Mm -hmm. and so I think that's really telling of what their understanding is of one another I think she's much more grounded almost perhaps perhaps that's indicating that fact it certainly feels that way I think that's so interesting because like as you said that like she associates him with like massive landscapes or things happening in nature and churning seas and yeah and that he associates her with like spectral humanoids it's like he's changing her inner landscape and she's doing something supernatural to him like I think that the fact that he is a churning sea or the sky like his face is always described as the sky that like He is, like, so omnipresent in her world that he's, like, the landscape. Mm. And that there's something, like, spectral 
ancestral because he is indeed haunted. Wispy, yeah. And she's like a different kind of haunting. Yeah. She's not quite a mist, right? Like she is like contained, but she's ungraspable. Right. The humanoid shape, I think you're right, is like deeply important here and to the nature of his haunting. But they're each ungraspable to one another because you can't grab a hold of a sunbeam. Mm-mm. Can't collapse the sky. Cannot swallow up the sea. <laughs> as much as she seems to want to. Yeah, but you also can't, you know, clutch a ghost. <laughs> I don't know. Or an elf. I think that's exactly right. Like, they're really coming at each other from where they are themselves at. And I think that's so funny. That's a really good point. He's pretty highfalutin and she's pretty down to earth. I don't think that's something that's often understood about the characters and their worldview. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think a lot of people beyond Orson Welles really understood (laughs) Rochester or took a lot of time to understand Rochester. I think there's, whenever this gets, like, adapted, I think people kind of read him out. As like hunk. Yeah, but like craggy. Like I think they read his sins correctly, but they have a really hard time reading this sort of, I don't want to say frivolous, but like I'm also loath to say romantic, but I don't know that there's another word for, for it. it. Yes. Yeah. So flirtatious and like so interested in pulling her out and so romantic. He's nervously tucking his slightly too long hair behind his ear. Yeah. Mentioning that he has written poetry. Yeah, there's like, he's definitely got like a feminine undercurrent. Absolutely. And I think you're right to say that with the exception of Orson Welles, that that interpretation of Rochester is always really lost. That like his masculinity isn't undergirded by this soft femininity, isn't undergirded by this insecurity to be handsome for the woman that he loves. Right. I like him so much in spite of myself. I know. I can't help it. It is like the worst Yeah. But also, like, there's something about, like, how bad he is and how good he is that kind of comes out in the wash as, like, a realistic feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you feel this, like, this kind of settling isn't the right way to describe it, but this, like, negotiation, this Mm -hmm. inner leveling we all go through because we all have relationships with actual human beings Mm -hmm. who are complicated and annoying as they are captivating and exciting. And and those things feel like inextricable, right? Like his darkness is inextricable from his, even taking out the like big bad of this book. He's still like this guy who is obsessed with his own appearance, his own physicality, and is coming at this from like a deficit, you know, is overcompensating. But the ways he overcompensates can be like so intoxicating, you know, like he's so flirtatious and funny and and has so much energy, right? And when it focuses on you, and he wouldn't be that person without this like weird self-obsession. Yeah, and his weird self-obsession is so clear. And like, as you say, when that energy is turned on you, she calls it a sunbeam, but another, like a more contemporary version is like, it's a spotlight. Mm -hmm. You feel it, it's warm, and suddenly you are in it and you are alone with him in it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think like if she had had the option to describe it as a spotlight, I think she would have, because I don't think Mrs. Fairfax is feeling all aglow to be near it. (laughs) Like it, it is like intensity and you know when you're a person who has intense energy and you can turn it on another person like I think Jane thinks she's playing her cards close to her chest but I think he knows that she's in the tractor beam oh yeah 
Absolutely he do. How could he not? How could he not? That last line, my only home. This is just an especially good chapter in a famously good book. Like, I just love all the imagery, even that particularly violent moment that was very, like, almost shocking, right? And then that what she said about, like, the greatest feeling is coming home to people who are happy to see you. That's so true. And, and this chapter is just like a big, warm cookie. It is. It is. And like, what's so wonderful about, especially when Jane goes on a journey, it's like we are really with her in the journey. Like we're with her in the carriage. We're with her in the coming home. And the fact that this chapter was entirely in the present and it felt so rooted in the moment and like having that urgency of language, I think also really aided it. Mm -hmm. Even that like, I strangled that newborn agony. Like, so good. And it's so short. It's such a short chapter. Mm-hmm. If you're going to read one chapter, I think turn your eyes to chapter 22 and read with us in your own head because it's so rich and tingly. <laughs> yeah, it is one dense, delightful cookie. You will finish it easily in a sitting. Feel that sizzle on your teeth. Mm. Well, I have nothing more to contribute besides that. What a great treat. What a treat. Exactly. Loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. <laughs> Mwah!